Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I decided to go to the Holocaust Museum. Most Palestinians don't learn about the Holocaust, partially from this understanding that if you feel your enemy's pain, where does that leave you? There's a fear of having compassion on the other who you see as an enemy. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Today's chat was recorded while I was in Israel and Palestine last month. I was there as part of a dual narrative peace trip with a group called Impact Safari, part of the nonprofit Small Giants Academy. They invited me along because, well, they figured I'd be able to contribute and share any progressive ideas I came across in some helpful ways. The interview was recorded in Tel Aviv, just ahead of the election, which has seen right-wing Benjamin Netanyahu, or Bibi, return to power with the backing of an ultra-nationalist coalition. Tensions were building while we were there. We passed through tear gas on one of the days. Israeli military presence was palpably dialed up and the roads in the West Bank were relatively quiet as a result. Some of the commentators and people on the ground who we met were predicting very worrying violence to come, especially if Bibi were to win. Indeed, there have been several attacks in the West Bank and Gaza since, killing more than a dozen people, making 2022 the deadliest year for the conflict in 16 years, bringing the total killed to 207 Palestinians and 28 Israelis, all of which is a very familiar state of affairs for this episode's guest. Aziz Abu Sarah is a Palestinian who grew up in East Jerusalem, the Palestinian half, if you like, of the historic and contentious city. As many of you listening know, much hoo-ha recently erupted when Australian Foreign Minister Penny Wong reverted Australia's position on recognition of West Jerusalem as the capital of Israel back to being in line with the UN and most of the world. This was after former Prime Minister Scott Morrison, in something of a pre-election stunt, had controversially decided to follow Trump's lead and declare it the capital. Anyway, like most people in Israel and Palestine, Aziz has lost many friends, neighbours and relatives to the ongoing and now escalating conflict, including his older brother. He was prevented from going to school at times by Israeli government edicts, and he didn't meet a Jew until he was 18, even though he lived alongside Israelis and West Jerusalem was only a five, ten minute walk away. Growing up in Jerusalem as an Arab meant Aziz was effectively stateless in a no-man's land without rights or freedoms. So as a teenager, he veered terrifyingly close to going down a very violent path. In fact, he started that trajectory. But thankfully, at 18, a simple moment changed the course of his life, which we'll get to in a moment. 
Today, Aziz is one of the most powerful and connected peace builders and cultural educators in the region. His conflict resolution work in more than 60 conflict zones, including in Colombia, the Balkans, Syria and Afghanistan, where he narrowly missed being blown up by a Taliban suicide bomber, has earned him the titles of National Geographic Explorer and TED Fellow and countless awards from the UN, the EU, universities and institutes of international education. He has also founded, chaired and led a long list of conflict resolution organisations around the world, including Bereaved Families for Peace and the Centre for World Religions, Diplomacy and Conflict Resolution at George Mason University, and he even tried to run for Mayor of Jerusalem, the first Palestinian to attempt to do so. Oh, and he co-founded with an Israeli-American Jew, the first ever dual narrative tour company, which entails curious tourists going to areas steeped in conflict and being led on a cultural, historical and gritty tour by a guide from each side of the conflict. To really cover off the intricacies of peace building in Israel and Palestine would take as many years as the conflict has been waged in the region. So, I try to steer the conversation to the approaches that are actually working in creating connections and healing that are happening on the ground beyond the politics and bombings, which is what we tend to see in the media because the good news happening between everyday humans is not clickbaity enough. Bombs are. Conflict is. Now, I'd also love everyone this far in to pause. There is a real tendency to come at this issue with very heightened ideas of right and wrong. I will confess fully that this is my tendency. I want to dive straight into it with a ledger board, trying to weigh up deaths and blame and intergenerational pain levels. And I'm guessing some of you right now are building assumptions as to what side I might be taking in all of this. But the most potent thing that Aziz and the other incredible Arab and Jewish leaders we met left me with was the invite to not see things in this limiting way, but to rather focus on helping in the process of building bridges. That's what the region, the conflict and all of humanity needs right now. Now, finally, I'm going to ask for your forgiveness. Aziz and I recorded our chat on the last day of what was an epic and very exhausting tour, sitting on the end of my bed in a tiny hotel room with the aircon turned off when we were meant to be at a dinner. So we jump around a bit. To assist with the flow, though, I've added some little editor notes where context is required and a quick few extra things to bear in mind. When Aziz talks about zones in the West Bank, he's referring to the three zones, A, B and C, that were established by the Oslo Accord as a transitional arrangement, yet the divisions persist. Area A is administered by the Palestinian Authority, Area C by Israel, and Area B is somewhat under joint control. These A zones are like little islands dotted across the Israeli-controlled C zone. So there are checkpoints everywhere, all requiring different permits, which Aziz will explain. Aziz also references settlers. He's referring to the half a million Israelis who have moved into about 140 settlements dotted all across the West Bank, bringing with them the Israeli military and more zone confusion. The United States General Assembly and the Security Council, the International Court of Justice, as well as many Israelis, regard these settlements as violating the Geneva Conventions and international humanitarian laws. And a lot of the conflict and peace negotiations get stuck in and around this issue. Some of you may be very aware of all of this, but I thought I'd just piece it out here. All right, enough. Let's cross to the hotel room in Tel Aviv. Please meet Aziz Abu Sarah. Welcome to my hotel room, Aziz Abu Sara. 
people know the context. We've been traveling for a good nine, 10 days. It's been a very intimate group and you have given us all a perspective on the conflict and how there are incredible attempts to try to resolve it in all different ways from angles, which have come as a huge surprise to me and to everybody on the trip. And that's why I want to do this chat with you so that people listening can get a bit of a feel for the myriad of issues. But let's start out by, I guess, connecting people into you and your life story and your life sort of up until about the age of 18, because there was a little bit of a shift that happened then. What was life like living in Jerusalem? For a Palestinian? It yes. was pre... Well, I thought it was normal, but I think every kid thinks their lives are normal until you figure out it wasn't. And in my case, it was anything but normal. And I went to school, had a family. For example, I don't think I've ever heard of a playground or anything fun to do or being able like, I don't remember as a little kid going on vacations, uh, like going to the sea. or Because you couldn't. Partially because we couldn't, one, afford going to those. And two, Palestinians in Jerusalem don't have citizenship. So... You can travel abroad easily. You didn't have a passport, did you? No. You didn't have citizenship no. in any particular area. No, no. And my, You're in no my man's family, land. my family still don't. They don't have any citizenship anywhere. They got two travel documents, one from Israel, one from Jordan. But yeah, if you're Palestinian in East Jerusalem, you're kind of in no man's land, a crazy reality. And just to confirm for people, Jerusalem is divided into West and East Jerusalem. East Jerusalem is sort of Palestinian territory. And then West Jerusalem is the Israeli Jerusalem. And that's the Jerusalem that's been discussed in terms of being the capital of Israel. You had many restrictions placed on you. I mean, from what I understand, Palestinians have to, I think it's something like a hundred permits or documents that Palestinians even today require to do anything. Different kinds of Palestinians have different kind of documents, which really is hard to understand, even for locals. I think at some point in the trip, I've made that comment. I was trying to explain why Palestinians in Gaza would have this document. Palestinians in the West Bank don't have that document. The permits needed are this. To go if from, from A here, to C. To, right. And so it's quite a confusing process. And I think it's important to understand, I work in peace right now, and some people will look at me and say, why do you talk about all the restrictions? You are a peace person now. And I say, you can't do peace without understanding the problems. You can't brush away everything that's going on. You can't say, well, we're now all going to hug and kiss, which I'm all for. But you also got to say, here are the issues that we have to work through. Here are the injustices. Here are the problems. And only through working through those things, like somebody like me who grew up with none of those things I mentioned, when across the street, my Jewish neighbors, who I didn't know, had all of these things I'm talking about. And we're talking about, I mean, some of the facilities were a five-minute walk away, and yet that five-minute walk was a walk that you didn't make for most right. of your childhood. And we're talking five, ten minutes. I mean, we were in the area and you showed us sort of where the first restaurant was that you worked in West Jerusalem as a dish hand. And that walk was terrifying for you. It was a ten, ten minute walk from your home. So you had lots of restrictions placed on you. You hadn't actually met an Israeli Jew properly as a kid, had you? No, the only ones I've met were soldiers, pretty much. And, you know, some of those soldiers were nice, but you cannot have a conversation with some someone carrying a gun telling you whether you can pass or not, and then others were not nice. I've been 
beat up, shot at, all of that. And stuff. of course, when you were, I think, was it 11 or 12? 10. You were 10. You woke in the night? Oh, that's you... when I was nine. 10 is the year after. Yeah, when I was nine, I woke at the night and a group of soldiers basically broke into our house and arrested my older brother, Taysir. Yes, he shared a bedroom with you. He was taken as many Palestinians, even to this day, as juveniles. 12-year-olds, 10-year-olds are arrested and taken to some sort of court. Military court. Military court. He was then placed in jail. Yeah, I was nine. And this was, was for throwing rocks at soldiers, right? For suspicion of throwing rocks, suspicion. which he refused to confess and led to him being beat up until he eventually did, which eventually caused health problems and internal injuries. And I remember, actually, we were allowed to visit him only three times, and each time it was three to four people. Mm-hmm. And so I remember the one time I was allowed to go, and it's like a whole day ordeal. You go six in the morning with the Red Cross, you wait forever. On a bus. And then, yeah, and you wait forever and then they drive you to the place. You wait outside the prison for like so long and then you have 10 minutes. You don't meet face to face. You have a, two fences that separate you so you can't touch. And then everybody is around you screaming because they're trying to talk to their loved ones. And it's like you leave more traumatized out yeah. of it than actually being glad you went. I, Kind of like my only thoughts, like, I don't want to, like, I'm happy to see my brother, but this is crazy. I barely, we couldn't talk in reality. And he was in jail for about a year, is that right? Just under a year. And then he was released. But then, of course, he was so unwell, uh, he had to be taken to hospital straight away. Yeah. Soon after, we took him to a hospital, scheduled the surgery, and he ended up... um, From the injuries he uh, sustained from beatings. Yeah, and then he few days after the surgery he he died as a result of of the complications which to me at that point being 10 the only thing I could think about is the soldiers who arrested him because he would not have been dead if these soldiers did not arrest him and that makes you angry, bitter the idea of coexistence, peace, all of that, I didn't even think about them, but I can think now if somebody would have mentioned it to me, I would have been like, are you stupid? What are you talking about? It turned my life upside down, changed my whole perception in the world. I mean, I was a really good student before, straight A student. All I thought, I like my mom have convinced me that education is really important. Which is very Palestinian, isn't it? It so is. Very, I mean, it is. very, very educated. And the women in particular are right. very, very educated. Yeah, the, pers- the first person to go to college in my family was my sister. Before my brothers, before anybody before me, absolutely. The moment they see her died, that became much less important mm. to me. The idea is like, what's a, what's the point of going to school? What's the point of trying hard? And you can see my the different grades between my fourth grade, where I had perfect scores, to my fifth grade was anything but perfect. And then there was sort of, I think, a checkpoint that was put in place that made it even more difficult for you to get to school at some stage, wasn't it? And so you had to hop from checkpoint to checkpoint just to get to your school because they changed the requirements. Yeah, so after Rabin was assassinated... And just for context, everyone, Yitzhak Rabin was Prime Minister of Israel in the early 1990s, and he jointly won the Nobel Peace Prize with his rival, Shimon Peres, and the Palestinian leader at the time, Yasser Arafat. Together, they'd negotiated the Oslo Accords, the closest the region had ever come to peace. But he was shot by an Israeli extremist in 1995, and, well, things haven't recovered since. 
In 96 comes Bibi Netanyahu, the guy who's still in politics, talk about deja vu, mm-hmm. craziness that so long and he's still there. And he decided where I lived. We lived about one, two miles from the heart of Jerusalem because building inside Jerusalem for Palestinians was and is still almost impossible. So as the family grew, my family, my dad decided to buy a land and build and was literally a 10 minutes, less five minutes ride from the old city. And Bibi Netanyahu decided, nope, if you live out, if you are a Jerusalem resident, a Palestinian, you live outside Jerusalem, you have no access to Jerusalem anymore. And, but my school was in Jerusalem. My brothers were working in Jerusalem. Our whole life, the center of life was Jerusalem. And for a few months until we ended up renting a house, a two-bedroom house. For so you had to pack up and leave to be able to act so that your parents could enable their kids just to go to the same school. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had two brothers who were married, who lived. We had a big house. You've, mm, you've seen it. There. So they, my two brothers were married, had kids, lived in the same house. We have multiple levels. We had to all leave and live in one apartment because we all needed an address in Jerusalem. And so my two brothers took the two bedrooms. I lived in the kitchen. My parents lived in the living room. It was the craziest maybe six months until we slowly, my brother started finding other places to live. So there's all kinds of reasons to have animosity towards the Israeli Jews as a kid, including, I think, you know, your father also lost a cousin in a terribly brutal way. But there was a sort of a shift, wasn't there? There was something that happened when you were a teenager that pretty much landed you here, you know, right. doing the work that you do. Yeah. So I refused to learn Hebrew in my high school because it's the language of those who killed my brother for the language of the enemy. And it was mandatory in my high school to learn Hebrew. But when I finished my high school, I realized that was a big mistake. If you live in Jerusalem and don't speak the language, good You'll luck. you nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. Your life is basically over. You can keep washing dishes for the rest of your life, which is something I was not interested in doing any longer. Still hate washing dishes today. <laughs> so I looked for the best place to learn Hebrew, and it's what's called Ulpan, which is where Jewish immigrants go to learn Hebrew, Jewish immigrants to Israel. And I signed up. I was the only Palestinian in that classroom. It was walking distance from my house. I never needed transportation to there. And like you said earlier, it was the most impactful, powerful, scary trip I've ever done because it was going, sitting in a classroom with everybody that I saw as one, I saw them as my enemy, but I also perceived that they see me as their enemy. And so just sitting in that classroom, you can just imagine the nervousness I had, the anxiety I had being in that room and, and the fear. Uh, I mean, I literally imagine that they all thinking, why is this Arab sitting here and what does he want from us? Get out. I was the only person, by the way, paying for the class to Right. Because if you're an immigrant, you get support to learn Hebrew. Fair enough, my school would have taught me and that would have been free. But to go to learn in that institute, I, I did have to pay for it. And through the time there, a lot of things changed. One, I met my Hebrew teacher who was an incredible human being, uh, a Jewish lady, who's to me was the first person who treated me really like a human being from from the Israeli side. And she did small things. Often people think peacemaking, you have to do that 
crazy big step. I don't think she even would have defined herself as a peacemaker. I don't think she would have thought about it in that way. But she was a human being. She was just a good person. And so she, I think, recognized maybe that I was feeling uncomfortable. Maybe not. That's my perception. She came and spoke. She knew a few words in Arabic. She said all of them to me, uh, which is like, welcome. I'm happy you are here. Let me know if you need anything. Small things like that. And some in Hebrew, some in uh, some in Arabic, some in English. You, I didn't speak any Hebrew. And that to me was just a shocking experience. And then during the class, she kept bringing my culture. She did not erase my existence, which is what I've experienced before. It's like your culture, who you are, your story is not important. Those things change the whole environment in the classroom. So the other students, we started talking to each other. We got to know each other. We got to like each other. I started going, having coffee with each other. Um, built a relationship and built friendship. Those few months while I was learning Hebrew, my whole life was going upside down. And in many ways, that experience sums up what we've witnessed with all of the various peace brokers that you've introduced us to, both on the Jewish side and the Palestinian side. The real common thread to all of it is when you bring the humans together. It's what's happening on the ground is a phrase that many of you have used. You know, it's at ground level that peace will come about. And you know, there's so many groups that have formed using this thesis and you're involved, I think, it seems, in most of them, yeah. Um, one of which, of course, is the Bereaved Families for Peace, um, which is a full-on concept. These are families who have lost somebody to the other side and they come together to basically forgive and preach compassion and so on. And you've introduced us to a few of those, and of course, Kamal, the Druze man, was an incredible instance of that, who lost his son and reached out to the family of the soldier who killed his son to literally say, your son didn't target my son. This is war and this happens and I forgive you. And it's a common story and it's a beautiful story. Isn't it amazing that those stories are so much harder to get publicized than the other ones. I can tell you hundreds that in my brain, hundreds of stories like this that are often too often forgotten, not giving the platform, not giving the space when they are the most powerful, because these are people who you don't expect to do that. They're the softer news story, believe it or not. The sensationalist story is conflict always. And at some point in the trip, we also met up with an incredible rabbi. Our rabbi, is it Melchior? Melchior. Melchior. Phenomenal one. I'll, I'll give some details of his story elsewhere because we could go into his life story in great detail. But he actually works to a similar concept. In fact, to the extent that he says dialogue is a waste of time, conversations, let's stop it. It's got to be about action and bringing so groups together. And he goes as far as saying, I'm not interested in meeting anyone unless they're my enemy. Like he's, you know, I think his words were make friends with your enemies. And that's his absolute doctrine. Uh, yeah, I think it's sometimes makes me laugh when people go, yeah, I'll talk to them when they stop being my enemy. Do you understand why we need to? It doesn't happen automatically. You have to talk to stop them from being your enemy. You have to work in communication. So much of conflicts, interpersonal, political, business, are like a communication, lack of empathy. And you don't get to communication, to empathy without talking to the other. Now, I fully agree with Melchior, and I think 
there are organizations, individuals that miss the point when, when they only want to talk, but never want to do something together. And that becomes, that makes our work much harder. Because when I go to my community and say, we're not here just to talk and feel good. We're here to make a change that will affect your life tomorrow. That will hopefully eventually also affect politics. They're much more willing to accept that than when I go and tell them, let's just all sit and eat hummus together. That's not what I'm promoting. I'm promoting a change of an equity that's different. You know, bringing people become more equal, pay payments, paycheck, people knowledge about what What's happening? People doing business together, doing business together, protesting together. A lot of the protests I've gone to, I've had my Jewish friends standing next to me as we standing in front of the Israeli soldiers saying, this is wrong. What you're doing here instead of me alone. And when my community see that Jewish person standing with me and saying, no, this is not justice. I want to be with you. That makes a big difference. That it, it also changes the perception. It's not anymore Arab versus Jewish. It's like, oh, this Jewish person standing with me might be this week. There was Jews who were out, um, many of my friends, uh, picking olives with Palestinians when a group of settlers attacked them. Settlers being Israelis that have moved into Palestinian territory in the West Bank and set up these settlements, which are controlled by Israeli law. So they get the power connection and the water connection, and they get all of those kinds of liberties while, you know, over a barbed wire fence are the Palestinians whose land has been encroached upon and they are under Israeli militant law and don't get water, electricity, and so on. Rough estimation, but that's what the settlements are. So this week, Israeli Jews, including rabbis, including people you wouldn't think, people having yarmulkes, went to these Palestinian lands and to pick olives, and they got attacked, and some of them got beat up by the settlers. Uh, The soldiers did not intervene to help those people. But you have to imagine then when a Palestinian watches that, it's so different. To me, that's powerful. That's the action that Melchior is talking about. Don't just talk, but rather do, whether it's co-protest, co-do business, co-whatever. If we do everything together, you break down this whole, it's an Arab versus issue. And I think the one way to break this conflict is it cannot continue into Arab versus Jew. I was really struck by that time that you wrote an article for a a Jewish newspaper in Tel Aviv about your experience of going to the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. And you wrote it not from your perspective as a Palestinian. You wrote it through another lens. Can you just explain that sort of process? Because I imagine it was very powerful. Yeah, I think one, I decided to go to the Holocaust Museum because as I started meeting more Israelis, I realized how much it shapes Israelis' thinking. And I knew nothing about it. Most Palestinians don't learn about the Holocaust, partially from this understanding that if you feel your enemy's pain, where does that leave you? There's a fear of having compassion on the other who you see as an enemy. And so I went and visited the place. It was very hard because at that point, I mean, I'm talking about 10, 20 years ago, I didn't know any Palestinian who've done it. I didn't know any Palestinian who I could model myself after in doing this. I was like... And yet it's in Jerusalem, you know? I mean, it's so hard to fathom for anyone who doesn't live here or hasn't visited here in a sort of a really entrenched way. And I should flag the incredible and harrowing Holocaust Museum or Yad Vashem is only seven kilometers from East Jerusalem. It's easier. It's easier for a Jewish person to not go into Bethlehem, to not go into East Jerusalem, to not see what Palestinians go through. 
And it's easier for a Palestinian to do the same. Confirming your biases. Right. Crossing that line, crossing that border or boundary will challenge you and it'll, it'll be painful and it's not easy. So, so I crossed that line and I went to, and I remember telling a couple of my friends and they thought I was crazy. Like, so how did you write it up crazy. in the paper? I thought I needed, it took me a while to write the article. I didn't write it like the next week. It took years before I wrote the article. It was the Holocaust Memorial Day. I was going to the next, I think, level of my awareness. I'm like, I need to commemorate this day. I need to be part of it. And I was actually invited to meet some Jews who've gone through the Holocaust, Holocaust survivors, and like decided to take action, as we were talking earlier. And then I decided to write this up as a blog before I even sent it to the newspaper. And I wrote this blog and I thought, you know what? I need to write it not from, okay, you've gone through this, but you need to understand my story, which is the easiest thing to do is to always insert your pain when and you're talking parallel. about somebody else. And to, yeah, compare, parallel. And I thought, I'm not going to do any of that. I'm going to write it as I want to understand. Here's what I went through. Here's why it was important. Uh, and when I published it in my blog, a friend who worked for that newspaper sent me a message say, this needs to be read by more people. And it was published, uh, yeah, it was published in Haaretz, did very well. Uh, and I started getting these amazing messages, emails, calls of people I don't know who would be like, we can't believe you did this. And didn't the editor contact you to give you feedback? Yeah, I was told... It's the least article they knew to get negative feedback, which is They've had less feedback on that than any other article, less negative feedback, which, given the subject matter, (laughs) is unbelievable. I I think the editor was also quite surprised. Um, I think that's what happens. In my mind, I thought I always, for many years, I tried to push my story. I want people to hear my story. And when you push something, people resist. But the moment I let go of pushing and said, I just want to learn, I'm going to sit here and listen. It's when people started contacting me and say, you've done this. You were willing to hear our story. What can we do to hear yours? Can you recommend people we can meet? Can you recommend a museum we can visit? Can you recommend a book we can get to um, go through? It's just, it was so powerful because, and I didn't think of that before I published the article to be clear. I didn't know this is where it would lead, but just watching the result, it really changed my perception about how do I continue my work as a peacemaker. It is really, really powerful. And I can see that it's informed the way you've done things since then. I just wouldn't mind if you gave a top line take on some of the work that you've then gone on to do. I know that you've worked with Afghani leaders. You've actually tried to help broker peace between the Taliban and the Afghanis a couple of years ago. You've got an incredible story there. Syria, the same sort of thing. Describe the work that you're doing in that area now, because of course, all of these instances, this work that you've done has put you in a position where you're engaged in some of the biggest conflicts in the world. Yeah, I think partially it takes, having been in a place where there's conflict all the time, there's danger all the time. i think I've missed being killed like so many times by like so such a small margin that takes away part of the fear. So 
in that aspect, I'm grateful. I didn't enjoy any moment where I was close to these. Well, I think in Afghanistan, things. wasn't there a moment where yeah. you were meant to be in a negotiation? I was working with the uh, former president of Afghanistan, Rabbani, and I've met him about this project I had uh, with George Mason University, where we wanted to help bring the religious leaders together to stop young people from being radicalized. And while meeting with him, I asked, he was heading the negotiations with Taliban. I asked if I could join and he said, yes, you can. Then I went to the States and I said, next time I come, I'll plan it to match when you're meeting with them. And while I was in the US, he met with the Taliban again and the person he met blew himself up and killed him. And if I was there, I would have been in that meeting. So mm. I was... A sliding door moment if it, there ever was it one. It is. And I had, I had guilt after that because part of me was like, oh, thank goodness I wasn't there. And then I felt guilty because what about this guy? Like I was supposed to be there. This guy got killed doing what he believed is right. And then I talked to his son after who ended up leading the negotiation after his dad was killed. And talking about radical peacemaking, like... I can't even, like, I think of myself maybe to some level as a radical peacemaker. I'm not there. I'm not where this guy whose dad was killed and he, like, maybe a month later, he was holding meetings with the people who killed his dad. It just was, wow. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Aziz, if there was a secret to radical peacemaking, peacemaking in general, based on the work that you've done, but particularly based in this country, in Israel, what do you think is the secret to it? I think radical listening. When I say radical, I don't mean radicalized. Radical ability to listen (laughs) and to really listen, not focusing on people, political positions, but trying to understand their stories where they come from, empathy. I mean, it's simple stuff. It's really not that complicated. We we think it is, but it's not. It's just not ignoring the human being in front of you and not getting too angry, too upset about things people say 
that's based on their experience and try to understand where their experience comes from. And I have just a million examples on, on those. At a granular level, what are the kinds of things that you do? I think people would be really interested to know. We all face conflicts at a very basic, intimate level, but then obviously in our workplaces and in maybe in some of our activist work that we do. How do you show that you're listening? How do you get the stories at the human level? How do you create that trust? What are some little techniques that you personally use that you know, that you're aware that you're doing it in the moment and you you're aware that they work. Personally, what I do is try to think what would I have done if I was in their shoe? What have would I have done if I've gone through what they've gone through? You went to the Holocaust Museum on this trip. I try to think if I was a Jewish person, how would that have affected my response to the conflict? And it would have, for sure, and try to be as objective truly as possible. I try to count many, many times before I respond to things I disagree with. It's okay that people disagree with me or my opinion. It, I don't feel I have to respond to everything. I think that has helped me a lot. It's like, let go of feeling I need to correct. Like Danny and I in the bus, Danny helped lead the trip with me. Uh, we call it the trip together. And he would take the microphone and say something. Danny, of course, is Jewish. Right. Uh, he has deep family heritage here in Israel. And there are moments I'm like, oh, I can correct this. But 90% of the time, so maybe 10%, I, I'm like, eh, I'll do it because we all fail at what we preach at some yes. point. <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's okay. It's how he sees it and it's all right. And then I'm sure... He, Danny had the same moments. I'm sure I've said stuff where he felt, oh, I can jump in and then let him continue. Never has there been a sort of a pointy end of all of the humanness, all of the human experiences than the Israel-Palestine situation, in my opinion. I almost think that it is sort of a representation of the everything of the human spirit, of incredible love and incredible pain and hatred and misconceptions and cognitive biases and power imbalances and history, you know? It, it, it's just the fulcrum of it, of it all. Just being here is an absolute test. I think for me also, it's just putting things into perspective of like, I've been in Syria, I've been in Afghanistan, I've been in quite a few other conflict zones and met incredible people, so tons of sufferings. And when you put things into perspective, you realize so much. You talked about interpersonal relationships and conflict. We fight over such pity things so often that we ignore the important stuff. We get so focused on nonsense that hurts our egos that sometimes I just have to take myself out of the situation things. Remember how it was in Kabul. Remember how it was in Syria. Remember the things that people have lived with and overcame ridiculous hardships. And then really I'm complaining about whatever you can call it. Like that's absurd. As is, I don't know how you feel about this, but there are a number of touch points here in Israel, Palestine, which tend to get people heated. At the same time, I don't think they're a bad sort of leverage point. So discussing some of the complexities. So Ooh. let's not go into it too much, but firstly, the idea of Jerusalem being the capital of Israel. 
very contentious issue. So much to discuss there. Number two, normalization. A lot of people listening probably don't know what that's about. So there's something to discuss there. Number three, boycotts or sanctions. I can probably put them all in one. Go for it. Because By the way, normalization, can you just tell everybody what that is? Is when you do stuff with Israelis, Jews, work with them, um, the kind of do stuff cultural you do. events, then you are accepting Israel the normal situation as is and saying occupation is okay, reality as is today is normal. I argue. And the Palestinians will criticize some of the work you do going, right. you're buying into normalization. Some. And, and I think that's important because when you out, when you live in the States, and I felt it when, when I went to other places and lived abroad, you feel a bit of guilt and then you become more purist and therefore, don't do anything with Israelis. And it's much easier when you're abroad. It was much easier for me when I was abroad than when you are here. So that's one thing. But I think with Palestinians here, I work with tons of Palestinians all over the West Bank. I employ a lot of Palestinians and many of them might disagree on some of the work I do, but they still will work with me. So normalization. I think the idea that you cannot work with Israelis at all until the occupation ends, I find it a problematic because we live here. Our economy is intertwined with Israel. Our everything day is intertwined with Israel. I think actually pushing by working together and making a change together. I'm not saying let's all again just sit down and eat hummus together. I'm saying let's do work together. Let's change reality together is anti-normalization. I am not normalized. Actually accepting the current status quo is normalization. Doing nothing about it, being an armchair critic is normalization. So I like to reframe that. Now, a lot of people will criticize, like you said, will criticize what I do and say, oh, you're making Israel look good. You're trying to beautify Israel. You've been on the trip. I don't hide anything. I'll tell you where Israel is not. And I'll tell you where it is. We went and saw checkpoints. We went and saw the wall. We talked about injustices. We met a guy who went to prison when he was 14. I don't try to beautify Israel in any way, but I also will talk about the people we meet, the Israelis we meet, the Jews we meet, who are my partners. And the idea that I shouldn't partner with them because they're Israeli doesn't make sense to me. I've been to protests where we been beat up together, me and my Israeli Jewish friend. And being anti-normalization, it can keep people stuck in victimhood, which is no good to anyone. A hundred percent. And it stops us from innovating. It stops us from finding solutions. So four years ago, I tried to run for mayor of Jerusalem and the anti-normalization people said, are you normalizing Israel sovereignty over Jerusalem? So I tied everything as of right here. You normalizing it all by by accepting when you're running by accepting like running is beyond that by running to the to be a mayor of Jerusalem I'm changing the status quo the whole both Israeli and Palestinian governments freaked out the Israeli government thinking what do we do if a Palestinian wins to be the mayor of Jerusalem that freaks out everyone the Palestinian government thinking oh new leadership coming out from young people how are we going to deal with that when the average age of leadership for us is about 70 plus years old. So even though I'm not that young, I'm way too young for them. So we were challenging the status quo. We were challenging normalization, but sitting and doing nothing about reality in Jerusalem, me as somebody from Jerusalem and just feeling 
okay, well, Israel's doing this and this to us, and I'm not going to do anything about it, except complain and so on. That doesn't make a change. So what about boycotts? I think in some ways they connected. To give context here, in Australia, there's quite a strong support, I think, in some quarters for boycotting either Israeli products or services. It happened at the Sydney Festival not so long ago, where there were threats to boycott the Sydney Festival that was being sponsored by the Israeli embassy. It's pretty full on. And I've always been deeply uncomfortable about it, to be honest. I can't see how that can be a solution. But yeah, tell me your point of view as is. Personally, I find boycott to not have worked. Like from a practical point of view, I don't see boycott have helped our cause so far. And maybe perhaps, and I understand somebody wants to do it, but perhaps the reason it hasn't worked also is because it's easier to boycott something than to invest into something. I would tell or the to people, understand an issue in its complexities. Right. But you know, when you boycott, you don't invest. You don't put anything from you. And I would say, instead of doing that, why don't you put your dollar, whatever currency you have, where you really believe and support the Palestinians to build a stronger economy, support the young, innovative people in Ramallah who can't find anybody to believe in them because the risk is high. That takes much more faith than boycott. I think it also, in my opinion, that would help Palestinians a million times more because if you look at Israel's economy, it has not suffered from any of those boycotts. It actually, in the last 20 years, has done better than ever. So we can talk about, oh, boycott will change reality. It has not. It probably will not. So even from a tactical point of view, it's not working. So look then on the Palestinian economy, which is not doing well at all. We have amazing, innovative people. Somebody will come to me and say, yeah, I believe in your cause because I boycott Israel. But what are you really doing to help us, not just to hurt Israel? Should we touch on Jerusalem as a capital? Is there something that you would like to say top line there? Because it's probably too big. Do you really go into? I think the reason I wanted to run for mayor of Jerusalem is to show there is an alternative way. Jerusalem is very important for Jews, for Christians, for Muslims. I'm open to multiple solutions how Jerusalem can be the capital of Palestine, the capital of Israel, whether we end up in a confederal states or federal or two states or whatever other solutions. I think right now, while we're still in conflict, it's going to be very hard to decide how that's going to happen. But what could make a difference is the step I tried to do four years ago, saying, let's get in the municipality. Let's make sure right now, The Jerusalem municipality has no Palestinians in it at all, meaning the city council is all Jewish. Uh, The mayor is Jewish since 1967. And I actually think we should challenge that. And there are legal obstacles to challenging that. You need to go probably Supreme Court and push it and potentially have international pressure and saying, hey, why are Palestinians not part of this? And then you have the Palestinian challenge, which the Palestinian Authority telling people to boycott elections, which is, I think, is a huge mistake. Why did you pull out from running for mayor? Both sides did not like it. It became too running. dangerous. It became too dangerous on multiple levels, not only for me, but also for the people running uh, with me. We were challenging, you know, the leadership in the Palestinian Authority and in Israel. I told the Israeli public, if you really a democracy, you need to not stop a Palestinian from running for mayor. I live in this city. We are 40%. A true democracy would allow. Amongst all the different techniques that you use, the one that you've really arrived on as the most successful after decades of doing this work um, is tourism. You make me seem so old. (laughs) There's actually a really great line that you, you quote Rabbi Daniel Roth, who we met on this trip. 
um, who's become a very good friend of yours. I think you were the first Palestinian, Palestinian he'd met. met, which was in 2009. Two th- very recent. He actually says that as tourists come into this area, unlike Israelis and Palestinians, we can go into all areas. We can see all sides, right, if we choose to. And so we actually have a great deal of power as storytellers um, because we can actually cross borders and and check all of these things out. I think that's a really good way of actually putting it. If you were to give an elevator pitch for why tourism is so important, because I know a lot of people get uncomfortable about coming to this area. They're big fans of Israel. And I understand them. I think a lot of tours here are problematic and I struggle with it too. If you come here, you should get to know both Israelis and Palestinians. You should visit both. You should put your money in both areas. That doesn't happen often. Some tours will direct you one way or the other. And so what we wanted to create is a tour that's holistic, that shows you everything without hiding anything. Talk about the issues, talk about the problems, but talk also about some solutions and see the beauty of the land, see the beauty of the people who live here, hear as many stories, get to hear the the voices that often are not heard on the news, like we mentioned earlier. That's why I think this is important. Having an Israeli and a Palestinian go with you on a tour. We do these for, for, for people who don't come on a big tour with us every Monday, for example, in the old city. And the feedback we get, somebody said, I took 10 tours while in the country, in the West Bank, in Israel, everywhere. And I took this one dual narrative tour six hours in the old city. And it was the best thing I've done while I was here because it showed me that there's more to what I was seeing. That just makes me so happy because obviously a couple of people probably won't like it, but it really makes people leave understanding more and with more hope. And it changes their perceptions when they go home and hopefully changes also their perception of how they see their countries, not only because you can go back to Australia. There are more than one narrative in, in oh, Melbourne. Yeah. I've been there. There's more than one narrative. This country holds a mirror up to our own behavior, um, right? like nothing else. And I think that's one of the things that I think is so important about these dual narratives things is that every conflict, every situation that we encounter, every country that even doesn't us. have a conflict. One of my least favorite moments in this work was going to this conference with a big, big travel company. And one of their top executives told me this work works in Israel and Palestine, but we in London do not have many narratives. We don't have conflict here. I've been to London and you have many more than two narratives. You have many more stories. You have many unheard voices. And it's really bugged me that one of the biggest tour companies in the world, maybe the largest actually, cannot see that everywhere in the world we have more than one story and tourism has not done well in exposing those stories. I'm not talking about poverty tourism. I'm not talking about volunteerism. I'm not saying let's go and like take photos of people from our buses. I'm saying sit with them, have meals with them, hear their stories, understand, have passion, let them ask you questions, have a relationship. And that doesn't happen enough. I agree. One of the things that I think has come out of this tour for me is a calming sense of acceptance that humans have conflict. It's it's what we do. We met with the chairman of the Palestinian Stock Exchange and he made the point that this is a 200, 300 year old joke. Like somebody else has been saying this conflict been, is 17 layers deep. And I think Rabbi Melchior, he made the point that what the conflict here presents to us is an incredible 
opportunity to rise to our best selves and hopefully solve this. This is the way he sees it. And that's very much what I take from all of this. Imagine my business partner is Jewish. When we started our Which business... Which he is, I'll just confirm his, that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm. He's Scott Cooper, American Jew, who came here for some in a birthright trip and realized it wasn't enough and stayed after his birthright Jewish trip, only visiting Israel, and took a bus on his own to Bethlehem. And he was like, this is different. And then he was, he told me he was terrified and then start talking to people. It was like, there, there is something. Every Jewish person who comes here has to come to Bethlehem. And then me and him met, started a business. And when we started, so many people told us to not trust each other. You have no idea. It's like, how can you trust a Jewish person? What if he takes all your money? You know, the whole conflict. And he heard similar voices. And yet we've been working together now for so long. I consider him like a brother. I talk to him more than anybody in my family. We have complete trust in each other. Knocking on wood because we've never really had a real fight. Like I yell at him and he yells at me, but not a fight, you know, like it's, and we make inappropriate jokes with each other all the time, like about being an Arab and being a Jew, but we love each other so much. We never think, oh, he's, he's the other. And that's opportunity is being able to break those barriers, boundaries, and show that there is a different way. Every time my tour guides, an Israeli and a Palestinian, walk in the old city together, they are changing perception in the whole area. When they go to a hotel together and they say, oh, I'm the guide and he's the guide, we're leading a tour together, it changes the perception in that hotel. When they are in a restaurant and they're like, who's the tour guide? And they go, oh, we are both, one Arab and one Jew, it changes the perception there. We're creating a new paradigm that it doesn't make a change necessarily right away, but already people seeing that happening, it's inspiring others to do similar work. And to me, that that alone is worth it. If there was a magic wand and you could resolve the conflict, what do you think would do it? What is the thing that could actually bring about peace in this area? I think more people working together, more people co-owning businesses together, studying together, learning together. We need to end this separation, segregation between our two peoples. I think that would make us realize our interest into being together. Even if you take out of it this is what's right to do. Our interest is in being together. And what a beautiful way to go about any kind of challenge. I mean, if that's what it takes and that's what we do, I mean, it's more beautiful than actually achieving peace, I think. You know, the actual manner in which we will have to do this crazy yeah. thing. I don't ask everybody on this podcast this question, but I think it's really pertinent to you. It's a phrase I came across via Eric Fromm, and it's, what is left if we might lose it all? For me, I'm already like, yes, I want to have peace. I want to see a reality change. But even if it doesn't happen, what I'm doing now is good enough because I do have it in the circle around me. It's the beauty. Yeah, it's already happening around me. And if you can't achieve peace worldwide or in the country, you can achieve it in your own surroundings. And Be the message in the meantime. Right. What a lovely note to finish on. Thank you so much, Aziz. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict is big and the place, its history is unfathomable. It's impossible to grasp it all in a podcast, in a lifetime. My good friend Barry, who co-founded Impact Safari and asked me to join the trip, shared with me this really helpful wisdom. If you leave Israel and Palestine more confused than when you arrived, then it's done its job. 
I couldn't help but think, both on the trip and in this chat with Aziz, that the place is almost a microcosm of all of human nature, all of our ugliness and our wonderful beauty, our worst, most base behaviour and our best nature. To investigate humans and life and everything about our engagement in it is, is also confusing and gets more confusing the more we venture into the shadow realms, the more that we try to understand it. And so understandably, little, if anything, sparks more outrage and division and cognitive schisms than the Jewish-Arab dilemma. I don't think I know anyone who does not have an inflamed opinion on it. It represents so much of all of us, our challenging and beautiful bits. And perhaps I should use this opportunity to invite everyone who listened to my conversation here to be aware of their own challenges and beauties, their own hurt, biases and schisms, and particularly before wading in with feedback and opinion, if you might have it. And to be aware that obviously I haven't endeavoured to cover off the entire conflict and all sides and all nuances. I'm still learning. I've got a lot to learn. But we all need to be aware it's a hard problem. It's one of the hardest. We tread openly and compassionately. And as Aziz and Danny, the the Israeli Jew who provided the other half of the dual dialogue on the trip, reminded us constantly as we were travelling about the region, let's not make this about right and wrong. It just doesn't work. Let's just get on with building bridges. All that complexity aside, I met a lot of people on the trip who have their sleeves rolled up, skin in the game, and so much to lose and gain. Among them were two rabbis, an ex-Israeli prime minister, a former terrorist who spent 14 years in jail and who now runs Combatants for Peace, and one of the wealthiest businessmen in the world, an Israeli, who actively employs predominantly Palestinian women in his businesses. And they told me and the other leaders on the trip that in so many ways, rather than being entirely despairing, the complexity and impossibility of it all is exactly where hope sits. It's exactly what will force a different way. Dialogue by Western liberal elites won't fix it. Politics is unlikely to. It will happen on the ground with people cutting straight to, well, what is left if we lose it all? What is left in a region that has lost it all many, many times over? Well, the answer is beautiful humans in all of our messiness, in all our longing to see the good in each other and ourselves, because I do think we do all want this. As Chief Rabbi of Denmark, Rabbi Melchior, put it, the conflict is our divine challenge. And really, we can apply this to so many of the hyper-objecty, wicked challenges we face in the world today. There's one other tip again brought up by many of the activists, which I don't think was emphasised enough in the chat with Aziz, and that also can be applied to finding peace or in the meantime, boots on the ground kind of peace. And that is choose friends who don't agree with you. In fact, actively befriend the enemy, actively and brazenly go to the other side of the wall, of the fence, the conversation and listen. Yes, but also act. There is so much more to say, so much more to learn in all of this, so much more discomfort to learn to live with, so much more wildness to access in ourselves through this issue. I'm going to issue one last invite. Take care and care wildly. And of course, build good bridges. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.